The book of Acts chapter 2 this morning, Sunday morning studying the book of Acts together. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles with Bibles right now, and you wave and they'll put a Bible in your hands. It'll be marked to our passage. And then please, if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. We'll pick things up in earnest in verse 42, but we'll want to begin our reading in verse 41. The word of the Lord. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, the breaking of bread, and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. And so continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with, simpli- with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all of the people. And then significantly, and the Lord added to the church daily such as were being saved, or in the New King James, those who were being saved. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, so much for your word. We wouldn't know where we would be without it. And we thank you so much for the diversity of your word, all of the variety of subjects that you address, and we know that you address each one because you know it's important for us to understand what is bound up in the passage. And we thank you this morning for all that is bound up in these verses and for the importance of what they will speak into our relationship with you and into our Christian life. And we ask that you freshly fill us with your spirit right now and give us a supernatural ability to absorb and a supernatural ability to hear your voice. Continue to conform us into the image of Christ through your word we pray, Father, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. The context of our passage this morning is the first sermon that was preached by the Apostle Peter, first gospel message ever preached to, uh, on the day of Pentecost, fully come following the formal birth of the church, the formal birth of of the body of Christ as a result of the supernatural phenomenon of the day of Pentecost. In the course of this sermon, Peter preached to that Jewish audience the need for them to repent of their sins, to put their faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins, and then to be water baptized as an outward declaration of the fact that they had trusted in Jesus for salvation. We're told that 3,000 people uh, responded to that gospel message, God's offer of forgiveness extended to them by the apostle Peter, and they became Christians as a result. So here you put yourself on the scene, you put yourself in the 
position of the apostles, and there's a question that's going to come to your mind because all of this is very new to them. Uh, the gospel is new to them in terms of preaching it in this new kind of uh, church age and all, delivering a message like that, 3,000 being saved. And one great question would have filled the mind of Peter as well as the rest of the apostles as these 3,000 a brand new baby, born-again Christians are standing before them. And the great question that would enter into their mind is, what in the world do we do with them now? They're brand new Christians. They've just experienced a spiritual birth. They've just been born again, come out of the spiritual womb, so to speak, and as is kind of helpless and as small and as needy as as a, a physical baby is, here they are in that same kind of spiritual condition. What do we do for them now? And thankfully, our Bible passage this morning gives us the answer. I'm going to share a few things this morning. That make, and by the way, I'll be somewhat academic this morning as a, a preparation for some of you. Um, but you might feel a little bit like you're in a pastor's conference in the early part of it, but I will turn things back toward you and back toward uh, myself and toward the local church as, as we talk about things. In the 30 years plus that I've been a pastor, I have never known a time when pastoring a church has become so complicated for pastors and for leaders. And every year it becomes more so. And pastoring a church is a very, very challenging thing no, uh, at any time, but it seems that with each year in this particular culture, the American culture, it becomes more and more challenging as time goes on. Not only because there are so many theories and so many ideas that are floating around constantly about what a church should be, what it should look like, what its music should be like, what its emphasis should be like, these kind of things are always floating around in an increasing measure, even so today, but also because increasingly, in my mind, in my opinion, the increasingly the expectations of many, that many people bring to churches today are in many cases impossibly high. They are coming from uh, other places than the Bible. And I think that when we come to any church that we would attend and we are bringing expectations that are non-biblical to that church, then we are bringing something to that church that is impossibly high for them to meet. And then you throw in the whole consumer mentality that an increasing number of people then bring to church and, this, and the competitive mindset that occurs with that, and then all of that gets introduced into the thinking of leaders and then others within the church. And we do live in a, a, a very much a consumer mentality of the culture that we live in, and, uh, and it's a very competitive environment that we live in. That then gets brought into the church, and we even talk about people that are looking for a church, that they are uh, church shopping. And so often 
people are looking for the best deal. How can they get the most for the least? I mean, all that comes right into the local church. I remember uh, a friend of mine uh, pastoring another Calvary Chapel in the United States is kind of an example of this. He used it as an illustration in a sermon. And he went to the back door following the sermon, and he's standing there, and he's greeting people. And a guy came up to him and looked him right in the eyes and said, I just came to see what you had to offer. And that's kind of the attitude. And I mean, if we're honest and God wanted to start to give us names, I mean, we could probably write into this room here this morning. But that's, that's the consumer mentality. This is, uh, this is for me. I want the most out of it by giving and still give the least to be able to get that amount. And so we shop for the best deal just like we would for tires or uh, auto batteries or food or whatever else. When my friend looked at the guy that said that to him and he said, well, what do you have to offer? And, of course, that's the attitude. That's the, that's the mature attitude of a Christian is that we come into a church and say, hey, this might be a place that needs me. This might be a place that needs my gift. And certainly it needs to be a place that we're comfortable in, we can grow in, but it can't be, you know, this, I'm going to choose a church on the basis of what I want from it, and it's all about me, without also thinking uh, in, a, in a more mature way. So this creates a very competitive environment, and then pretty soon churches and church leaders feel that they must compete with one another for the customer, and then it starts to get very, very ugly, and, um, and all kinds of goofy things start to happen, and it puts an immense pressure on pastors and church leadership, and that kind of pressure can really, really be crushing. And thus, uh, I am never surprised when I hear it said that 15,000 pastors leave the pastorate every month in the United States of America. Isn't that something? 15,000 pastors say, I'm getting out of here, whether for age or for health or for just saying, I'm, I can't do this anymore. That doesn't mean that people aren't coming in at, at some uh, rate as well, but that's a lot of people on a monthly basis leaving the pastorate. And I can't, I can't verify the accuracy of the number, but the number itself doesn't cause me to be unbelieving related to it. Several years ago, I was at a pastor's conference, and I heard one of the very best things I've ever heard anybody say at a pastor's conference, and it was spoken by Don McClure, who will be here to do the marriage uh, conference. And Don got up, and in the course of his teaching, he declared, one of the most miserable places to be in all of life is to be in the ministry looking for a vision. To be in the ministry, not having a vision, but to be in the ministry actively in a search for a vision. And I thought to myself how true that is, how miserable it is to be in the ministry without a vision. It's hard enough with a vision. It's hard enough with a biblical vision. But to think of how miserable it would be to be in the ministry without a vision of two things. Number one, what we're aiming at as a church, and number two, how to get there, how to get what 
where we're aiming at. And I think that surely that issue alone could explain a significant portion of that alarming statistic that I just mentioned. The ministry has enough challenges when you have vision, when you know where you're going and how to get there. It's impossible if we don't know what we're aiming at and how to get there. Now, this doesn't just affect pastors. But this is important for all Christians to understand as well. I think that it's important that every Christian understand what is necessary in order for us to grow into maturity as Christians and then to make sure that we are bringing those expectations to our local church and not expectations that don't find any place at all within the Bible. So while it may seem that we're going to talk about this morning is going to be better directed at pastors, that isn't true because it does almost no good for leadership within a church to know what we're aiming at and how to get there if the congregation also does not know what we're aiming at and how to get there or Uh, doesn't buy into it biblically at all. I think it's helpful for everyone to to realize that neither the church or the leaders of a church nor the church itself is free to define what the church is supposed to be and what it is to emphasize. I think that that can be kind of a new revelation for people. And, And if I'm a new Christian or I'm new to church, there can be this idea that a group of people can get together, they can come up with their own ideas about what a church should be, make it into that, God will be happy with that, and that leaders and even the congregation have that kind of freedom biblically. But the Bible teaches that we aren't free to come up with our own ideas, our own definitions of what the church is to be and what it's to emphasize, but that God has already done that for us. On the day of Pentecost, when those 3,000 were saved, those 3,000 belonged to God. Blood bought by the blood of Jesus Christ, they belonged to God. And God knew what he wanted to do with them in order to bring them to maturity. They were not given to Peter, not given to the rest of the apostles to conduct some kind of an experiment uh, on. And so God told them what he wanted uh, to done with them next, and in doing so, he has provided us with a very, very valuable revelation as well. So we begin by asking ourselves, what's the purpose of the church? What are we aiming at? And I don't want you to shout it out, but I want you to think about that in your mind, to think to yourself, What is the purpose of the church? What are we aiming at as the body of Christ here in this world? And you come up with your your own idea in your heart, and because you're doing it in the privacy of your own heart, you can be right or wrong, and there's no embarrassment on it. The Bible teaches that we've been given a commission by Jesus, a commission that is so great that it's called the Great Commission. Jesus declared in Matthew chapter 28, and he said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And, lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age." 
The church exists in order to, the local church, in order to make disciples. What are disciples? To make mature followers of Jesus Christ, maturity being defined as the ability to reproduce ourselves spiritually. We talk about physical maturity being the ability to reproduce ourselves physically. Well, the same thing is true spiritually. Spiritual maturity is marked by the ability for a Christian to reproduce him or herself by being able to share the gospel with someone who does not know the gospel to pray with them, to put their faith in Christ if they so desire, and then to help them take the early steps that they need to take in growing in their relationship with the Lord. That is a mature Christian, one who is able to do those things. That's the commission that we've been given, and it is a great commission. So the end product, so to speak, that God wants coming out of a church are solid, mature Christians who can then disciple others. That's what we're aiming at, not to amuse people or entertain people or do whatever we need to do to just keep people coming back. This is the purpose and the focus of the local church. And when I realized that, my entire perspective can change concerning church. I realize that in any church that uh, I attend, there's a personal uh, element to it. I need to be nurtured. I need to be equipped. I need to be encouraged in my own relationship with the Lord. There's nothing wrong with that. That's important. It's necessary. But it's also important for me to realize that when I'm listening, for instance, to the Word of God being taught, whether it's in the sanctuary here right now or in men's Bible study or women's Bible study or any of the other many Bible studies that are available in the course of uh, the week, that I'm not only listening and learning for myself, but I'm listening and learning the Word of God for the sake of the multitude of people that I am going to run into for the rest of my life so that I can be able to help them spiritually. And so the result is, when I realize this, is that my listening and learning takes on a greater sense of importance, a greater sense of urgency than just whether what is being taught meets a current need in my life on any given week. When I'm at a pastor's conference, and it's always a privilege for me to be at a pastor's conference, and I'm there. I've been sent there, and I've been sent as the pastor of this church to go to that pastor's conference. And so when I'm there and I'm listening to the uh, teaching uh, that's going on in that pastor's conference, typically there'll be like nine sessions of teaching on top of the worship and all. When I'm there, not everything that is taught is of equal interest to me. Some is very interesting to me, and part of it is not that interesting to me. And, uh, and then some of it is, is applicational to my life, and then some of it is less applicational to my life. But what I endeavor to do when I'm in that environment is to give the speaker my full attention because I realize that I have gone to that place not merely to listen for myself, but to listen for this church and to listen on your behalf so that when 
I then find myself in a counseling session with somebody. Somebody said something at the conference. That is the very best way to answer this particular situation. I didn't sleep through it, so the next time I counsel someone in that situation, I can then counsel them with a clarity that I haven't had before. The same thing is true related to a Bible passage. Somebody says something that just crystallizes that. Yes, that's the essence of that passage. And then when I teach it again, I will teach it that way. It isn't just me and for me. It is for the larger part of the body of Christ and people I am yet going to be ministering to further down in the road in my life. And what is true of me, of course, is also true of you. And so, as Christians, we want to grow in our Christian life for the blessing that it brings to our own life, of course, but also with a mind toward others as well. Otherwise, what happens is a church becomes a gigantic bless-me club, and when it becomes a gigantic bless-me club, then it becomes very carnal, and that church is going to find itself in a lot of trouble. It is, I need blessing, God knows that, but my heart is also concerned about blessing others within the body of Christ as well. So great, that's the Great Commission, that's our commission, but that raises the next question, and that is, if the Great Commission is to make disciples, then how in the world do we make disciples? And are we free to define how that happens, or does God tell us how to do that? And thankfully... He tells us how to do it, and I know of no better place uh, with, you know, greater clarity or conciseness than observing how the Holy Spirit made disciples of those early uh, Christians in verse 42, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, number one, and fellowship, and in the breaking of bread, and in prayers. When he talks about those four things as being foundational for making disciples, he begins that uh, explanation with the phrase, they continued steadfastly in these four things. And that phrase, continued steadfastly, is a small phrase, but it's a very important one. And it means to be strong in, to continue to do something with intense effort because it takes effort to stay focused on these things in any cultural environment of the world or whatever, you know, is going on in wherever churches find themselves in the world. There's always pressure to move away from these things. But in the early church, these things, they continued steadfastly in them. In other words, these things were non-negotiable. Important for us to know, this is non-negotiable. It was intentional on their part and it was foundational to them and is to be in every Christian church in the world, including ours. And so they gave themselves steadfastly to, we're told, the apostles' doctrine. And the apostles' doctrine refers to the Word of God, where there is a great emphasis upon the teaching of the Word of God, not merely to teach the Word of God, but in order to make disciples, to make mature followers of Jesus. And why is the Word of God listed first here, and why is it so important? Because the Bible is the single greatest and purest revelation of God and His will for our lives 
in the world today. We cannot know God, and we cannot know what his uh, will is for our lives independent of the Word of God. So I think that maybe a handful of people in the room here today, anybody that's new to Christianity and kind of looking around at different churches to try and find one in which they're going to settle into, uh, would walk away with the observation and conclude, well, boy, everywhere I've been, they've committed a significant portion of the service to the study of the Bible. I wonder why they do that. And the reason they do that is for the reasons that we're talking about here. No Christian can ever become mature apart from learning the Bible, knowing the Bible, and then obeying the Bible, making it the standard for our doctrine and our practice, making it the standard for what we believe in our noggin, and to make it the standard for the life that we live on an everyday basis. Paul wrote to Timothy in this vein in his second epistle, and he said, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And that's what the Word of God does, and it uniquely does in our lives as Christians. The Bible is the... Uh, the, the, the Word of God is to our inner man uh, what physical food is to our physical body. So in a physical body, you've probably had this experience where, especially when you're young and you're starving all of the time when you're a kid, and, uh, but even happens as an adult where maybe you're out hiking or you missed a few meals on this or that or whatever, and then finally somebody puts a bowl of uh, you know, stew in front of you, and you take and you put that stew to your lips, and that stew goes into your mouth, and you can literally feel that nourishment radiate through your body. I, I, hope, I hope I'm not alone in feeling that. But you know how that happens. It just goes, and it's almost like a groan, oh, you know, is, is it, because the body's just going, finally, you sent me some nourishment. And, 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 of course, nobody can grow into maturity apart from nourishment, physical nourishment. The same thing is true spiritually. The Word of God meets that need in our lives. And sometimes if you've been, you know, we find ourselves in a place of tremendous trial or difficulty in our life or something is going on where the spiritual uh, demands of our life are going out in such a strong way and then we sit down one morning and, you know, maybe most mornings in our quiet time, the Word of God is nourishing and it's doing its thing and we love it and all that. But on this morning, you sit down, you open that Bible, you start to read it, and you can feel its power just radiate through your inner man. And that's communicating the fact that there's an inner man that's real in our lives and that he needs to be nourished. The old saying is, uh, seven days without the Word of God makes one weak. And that's what happens. We weaken spiritually the longer we are away from the Word of God. We need the nourishment of the Word of God to mature spiritually in the same way that physical nourishment is necessary for physical maturity. When he talks here about the apostles' doctrine, 
The word doctrine is an interesting word. It speaks of teaching. It speaks of tutoring. And sometimes people, you, you use terms like doctrine, and they're just ready to go to sleep on you. Don't give me doctrine. Give me stories, you know. And uh, give me something with a puppy, preferably, you know. Well, puppy stories are wonderful in their own place, but I'm never going to reach maturity on puppy stories. Mix them in there. Help them illustrate doctrine. But it's important for us to have good, strong meat and potatoes in terms of food within, within our lives. All of that's necessary. And uh, knowing about justification and redemption and reconciliation and sanctification and propitiation, these kind of words, to know them. So even as we're singing this morning and the worship team is leading us in worship, that as we're singing these words, that we understand what these words mean, what, the, what they are in terms of reality in our lives and how they've been provided to us by Christ, and it enriches us in a way. It deepens our relationship with God in a way that never would apart from good, solid, sound doctrine. And one of the things about sound doctrine is it requires something of the listener in order to learn it because it isn't always the funnest thing, but it's, the, it's very important uh, to learn. And, and it's, it's said about, I've heard missionaries say through the years about uh, Christianity in the continent of Africa that their Christianity is an inch deep and a mile wide. And that's what happens apart from the apostles' doctrine. Uh, a Christian life is an inch deep and a mile wide. And any of us can settle into a similar Christianity. And depth in the Word of God is very important, and it keeps us from going to that place. I like the old saying, and I think Sandy Adams has it on his website at Calvary Chapel Stone Mountain, that it takes a, a whole Bible to make a whole Christian to reach a whole world. And that is very, very well said and very true. Well, not only was they to give themselves steadfastly to the apostles' doctrine, but they were also to give themselves to fellowship, we notice. And that word fellowship in the Greek, it's the Greek word koinonia, and it means fellowship, it means sharing, it means a having in common. In other words, these Christians developed deeply spiritual and influential relationships with other Christians. That's what, they, that's what was a part of their life. They learned the apostles' doctrine, but they developed spiritually deep and influential relationships with other Christians. And, of course, we need a relationship with God in our lives, but it's important for us as Christians to realize we also need spiritually influential relationships with other Christians in order to grow and in order to mature. Um, I came to know the Lord 35 years ago, and I still remember and have relationship with several of the men who helped mentor and disciple me by way of relationship in those early days of my Christian life. And they remain spiritually influential in my life uh, to this day. And we all need those kind of relationships. So it is my desire, and I mention this every so often, it is my desire for this fellowship 
that every single Christian in this church would have at least three or four significant relationships with other Christians for spiritual growth and encouragement. People who know us inside and out, they know us very, very well. We could go to them at the drop of a hat, and crisis has come into our life at the drop of a hat, or an important decision can come into our life at the drop of a hat. People we can go to immediately and say, I need you to pray for me. I, I, I want to ask you, how do you see this biblically? How would you look at it? And please counsel me related to that. We all need those kind of relationships in our life as Christians and uh, for uh, prayer and otherwise. The writer of the book of Hebrews, he wrote concerning this whole need for relationship in Hebrews chapter 10. And he said, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, which requires fellowship, doesn't it? Requires relationship. And then he goes on to speak about how that relationship occurs. He said, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much more as you see the day approaching. And so the importance of us coming together as we do here today, but more than gathering together, he uses the word assembling ourselves together, especially as we see the day of Jesus' return approaching. We are going to need one another, and we're going to need deep relationship with one another as Christians, and in ever-increasing measure, the closer and closer it gets to Jesus' return because we will become more and more marginalized. Life will become more and more challenging. The world will be going against the stream that uh, we will have to go against the stream of the world and being faithful to the Lord. And God is going to be great in all of that, and lots of people are going to get saved as a result of that, but we're going to need each other in this kind of a way. So he says we need to assemble together, which is the word speaks of something superior to gathering together. Assembling together is something that's stronger than merely gathering together. So let's say illustrated by a bike. I can throw a tarp out here on the stage, and we can gather a bicycle together in all of its individual pieces and put it down on that tarp, and an entire bike has gathered together in that location. It is something entirely superior if that bicycle is assembled if it is in proper relationship with every other part of the bicycle, now you got something that can make a difference. Now this is something that's really useful. And so the importance of not just coming into a church or belonging to a church as an individual. I come in with my own personal relationship with God. I don't care about anybody else. I leave with my own personal relationship with God. We gathered in a room that's way less than what God wants to have happen when our lives are interconnected in a way that fellowship causes it to be interconnected. Inter, uh, so important that, that uh, a Christian life without being interconnected spiritually with other Christians is dramatically inferior uh, Christian experience in the same way that the one bike is, is dramatically inferior uh, to the other. Uh, there's a tremendous proverb in the Old Testament that speaks to the importance of fellowship as well. 
Proverbs chapter 27, verse 17, as iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. And it's a beautiful proverb that speaks to how Christian fellowship, how our interaction with one another, our coming into contact with one another to talk about the Scriptures, to talk about uh, ideas, processing life in the light of Scriptures, how that when we do that with other people, we end up leaving the conversation having been sharpened and blessed to such a degree, the writer says, that our countenance, our face is actually affected by it. We leave encouraged. We leave uplifted. I think one of the greatest experiences of the Christian life is to talk to another Christian in this kind of way. It happens all of the time after services in this room, out in the fellowship hall. You've experienced it yourself where we head out after the service, and here's a couple of people that we know, and we walk up and we say hi, and they're discussing some aspect of the Word of God or something about the Christian life, or I've got this problem, and I don't know quite how God looks at it and all, and then pretty soon one of them says something over here related to it, and then the next person says this, and then you get a thought into your mind related to it, and you chime in, and then that makes them think of something they'd never thought of before, and they say that, which makes you think of something, and then all of a sudden you realize God's joined the conversation. The Holy Spirit has joined this conversation. And when everybody gets done and walks away from it, we realize that was a wonderful God moment of what happened there, and God is always looking to do that. I've left conversations like that where it's like I've just kind of bluffed that I knew everything that everybody was saying, you know, and then I go find a bench and I write down everything that just got said because that's the most amazing outline for that passage. I, it take me six days to come up with that, and they just gave it to me, and I'm going to preach it in a month and not give them any credit for it at all. Hmm. But you walk away and the effect is so great, it, 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 it affects our countenance, our face. And Christian fellowship makes us sharper than we would ever be if we were left to ourselves. We grow in this Christian life, and this is determined by God. We grow through interaction with one another. And this is very important for us to understand as Christians who are serving the Lord in such an individualistic culture as ours because we can then carry that individualism over into our Christian experience, our church experience, and it isn't healthy. Where somebody looks and says, I, am, I have my Christian life, I'm saved, I have a relationship with God, I have my own devotional life, I don't really see any need to develop relationships with other Christians. And I know people like this. And the problem is, someday you will. Someday you will. But the moment you need them, they won't be nurtured and those relationships will not be mature the way that you're going to need them to be in the moment in crisis in your life. To say nothing of the fact that there can be any number of people within the church that, that we attend that is, we also, they also have a need for your encouragement and your spiritual 
influence as well. So it's important not to get individualistic on this. We need each other in the body of Christ, and we need each other for growth. And the early church understood the importance of relationship with other spiritual Christians in order to grow into maturity. When I used to play a lot of basketball in high school and junior college, and um, and on Saturdays, you know, you just look for whatever gym the city was opening up, and sometimes they'd open up two or three gyms. And, um, and I never had a car, so I'm bumming a ride with my other basketball friends trying to get to here and there. It was Randy Lee was the best guy to go with. He had a Camaro Z28, and it was, yeah, it was one rocking car, man, white, and the orange trim, and whoo, man. And my best friend had an Impala. It was good. I mean, these are good friends, you know. I ditched them as soon as they sold their cars. It was, was totally there. But what we would do is we would go from gym to gym to gym as high schoolers, and if we walked into a gym, say Ridgeview, and it was all filled with people like us, it was filled with junior hires, we would leave the gym, and we were looking for the gym that the college players were playing in because we wanted to play somebody who could challenge us. Yeah, they'd burn us like crazy, they'd beat us up like crazy, but they knew more than we knew, and, and there was only one way to learn what they knew, and that is to get in the thick with them. And the same thing is spiritually, and, and it, it, it happens, not just in terms of athletics, Athletics, but spiritually as well. We all then will grow together, challenging each other to greatness. The third thing that they gave themselves steadfastly to was the breaking of bread. That refers to the Lord's Supper and the partaking of communion on a regular basis. We do that on the second Sunday night of, of every month. And uh, it is a time for us to come together and just remember Jesus, to remember what he has done for us, in his death, in his burial, and in his resurrection. Remember Jesus said when he instituted the Lord's Supper, he said, do this in remembrance of me. Why would Jesus institute something so that he would be remembered in a local church? You mean Jesus can be forgotten by a church? Jesus can be forgotten by a church. The seventh letter that Jesus writes of the seven letters that he wrote to the seven churches in the book of Revelation was to a church of Laodicea. And the church of Laodicea had become the people rule. It was, it was completely self-dominated. It was all about people and man-centered rather than God-centered. Jesus portrays himself as on the outside of the church knocking to get in, and nobody inside the church has the foggiest idea that there's something wrong with that picture. Yes, Jesus can get lost in a church where a church becomes about something other than him supremely and a relationship with him. And the partaking of the Lord's Supper reminds us to keep the main thing the main thing. And the main thing is that we have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ and the sacrifice that he made in order to make that possible. Now, the partaking of the Lord's Supper, never to be a mindless activity. We take, we take it, as I say, once a month, and it's never, okay, here's the, here's the Sunday night, and here's the ritual, and we just do it, and blah, blah, blah. There's a reason for the partaking of the Lord's Supper. It is not only to uh, do this in remembrance of Jesus, but it is in order that the great realities that are a part of our life because of his sacrifice and his resurrection, that we, those things and those themes are constantly brought before us. The theme of love, the theme of forgiveness, 
and grace and redemption, relationship with God, not forgetting Jesus, realizing that he is going to return, remembering that his sacrifice and his resurrection has overwhelmed my past, it's overwhelmed my present, it's overwhelmed my future. And so it keeps these things in front of us, and the Lord knows that we need to be reminded of those on a regular basis. And so it keeps the main thing, the main thing, and the main thing, so to speak, is Jesus. And then he speaks of prayers here. And when he talks about prayers here as a means of growing into maturity, growing in prayer is vital to spiritual maturity. And all prayer is is talking to God. I mean, that's what it is. And it's simply talking to God. And I like the old saying, prayer is an expression of our dependence upon God. The more a person prays, the more they recognize their dependence upon God. The less a person prays, it's an indication that they don't see themselves as dependent upon God as, as they need to be. So it's an expression of our dependence upon God. And they recognized in that early church their dependence on God, how much they needed from him, and so they prayed. What's being talked about here probably refers to public prayer or uh, uh, out loud prayer, uh, prayer meetings, uh, uh, prayer services, praying with other Christians. Now, most of the prayer that we will pray as Christians is private. It's just between us and God. But that shouldn't be the extent of our prayer life as Christians. It's important that some portion of our prayer life be spent praying in agreement with other Christians because there's promises associated with that in the Bible. Jesus declared in Matthew 18, again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst. There is something significant in the eyes of God about two or three or more praying together over a particular issue, something significant about it. And I would encourage every single one of us as Christians, sometimes they talk about the greatest fear that people have is public speaking, getting up in front of people and talking. Well, prayer has that kind of public speaking kind of element to it, and some people are just terrified of, of praying out loud. And, of course, it's a vulnerable part of our lives and our relationship with God. We can get self-protective in that kind of a way. But I, I think it's important that every Christian not stop growing in our prayer until we're comfortable praying out loud with other Christians in a small group of Christians. And to get over the self-consciousness of that that some of us can feel, even the paralysis that we can feel, the prayer doesn't have to be long. It can just be a sentence, but something where every single Christian can be used by God to pray out loud in a group. And when you're in a small group maybe and people are praying and every one of them that's praying out loud had to pray out loud for the first time, in a public setting, and they survived. And so you'll survive too and, and uh, to be able to do that. And one of the reasons that that's important is when you pray for something, when you look at a situation and I look at a situation, a certain prayer comes from my heart to God related to that issue. But you look at it a different way, and you pray in a different way. 
And because you pray in a different way, I get to agree with your prayer. And by the time you get two or three people praying related to something, man, we're seeing this thing really, really clearly and being able to agree with one another in prayer. So you, if you won't do it for yourself, it's important for you to do it for the rest of us. We want to agree with your prayer related to whatever issues that we are praying about. And don't worry about it being fancy or anything like that. It's one of the kind of curses of familiarity related to prayer and anything that we do a lot as Christians through the years is it becomes very familiar and pretty soon you can pray like grease lightning and not even think about God. I remember a friend of mine, he's a pastor, and he gave an illustration related to this that really stuck with me. And he was pastoring at the time and he um, they met, this group went out to share the gospel at the downtown area of the city that they were living in. So they all come together, they take hands, they pray, he prays for them, Lord bless us and give us open doors, etc., etc. And then they all break off and they're going to meet back in two or three hours, debrief, and then they're going to pray for everyone that they talked with. Well, they come back together, they take and they hold hands, and if you've ever been in that kind of a prayer thing, somebody begins the prayer. And there's some kind of a dynamic with Christians. If we pray and there's eight of us in a circle, one person prays, and then somebody prays across the circle over there, then it's like, okay, phew, it's wide open. I can pray or not pray. This thing's just going to kind of do a zigzag all over. And what. But sometimes the person prays, and then the person right to their left prays. And then the next one to their left prays, and then everyone in the circle goes, uh-oh, it's coming toward me. And that was one of those things that kind of happened, and there was someone there that was just a brand new Christian. And she kind of stumbled out this prayer, and obviously she wasn't comfortable, but she wanted to engage in it at all. And my pastor, I mean, sharing, the friend, he's sharing this out loud. He said he's sitting, standing there, and he's listening to the prayer, and he just began to feel sorry for her. It was such a bad prayer. And he's talking to the Lord. He says, Lord, I just feel so bad. How embarrassing for her, her praying like this. And the Lord spoke to him and said, she's the only one that prayed to me. She's the only one that prayed to me. What matters is what's in our heart, and is it real? And that's what God's concerned about. And so start with a sentence. Start with something and the importance of prayer is a part of growing in maturity. Now, those four things are vital. But before we leave this, I want you to realize that there are three things that are a continuous steadfastly category that are in Acts chapter 2 that we've already talked about. And the first thing is evangelism. Peter already preached. So you can't make disciples unless people are coming to the Lord. The importance of evangelism as a part of a local church. And then there's the baptism with the Holy Spirit, which is so vital, already spoken of in Acts chapter 2. And then there's water baptism spoken of in verse 41. And so you take these seven things, and what we do as a church, and you ought to understand this, is that when anybody comes to us and says, hey, here's an idea. Why don't we try this? Have you ever thought about this or that kind of a thing? We run any new idea through that seven 
part grid, and if it's something that's a part of those seven things, we look and say, let's pray about whether the Lord wants us to do that. If it isn't a part of those seven things, then we look at it and we wonder whether that's something God has really called us to be involved in. So that's the foundation. Those are the four things and then the seven things that they continued steadfastly in. And the fruit of all of it, he tells us, verse 43, fear came upon every soul. They took their Christianity seriously, and as a result of that, the world that was watching did as well. Verse 43, uh, that church became a safe place for God to manifest the supernatural because he knew they wouldn't start to chase the supernatural and, and get the, you know, the cart before the horse. In verses 44 and 45, the Christians developed a very, very deep sacrificial love and concern for one another out of that foundation. They developed, verse 46, a great love for fellowship. They just wanted to be around Christians, whether they were at the temple or whether they were house to house anywhere. Their Christianity was marked by gladness and contentedness. Verse 46, it resulted in great praise and worship to God. Verse 47, and verse 47, favor also with the people. They were holy, they were happy, and this was an attractive Christian in Christianity to a world that was watching them. And finally, I want you to notice the end of verse 47, very significantly, and the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. In other words, the old saying is, is that when the church becomes what God wants it to be, then God can add to that church the people that he wants to add to that church. And so, that, and this is the church, this is what he desires a church to be, what he desires it to emphasize, to emphasize and what he desires the individual saints in that church to be so that he can then say, I can add more people to that environment and they will be discipled in the same way there as well. There are so many models for the church floating around today. This is the one that we can be confident in because it's in God's Word and it has served God's people for 2,000 years. Acts 2.42 is a lifesaver for pastors because it keeps us from being pulled in all directions by the culture but also by the Christian subculture as well. But it's also important that every Christian understands it as well. So you understand and I understand what the church that you're attending is aiming at and how it's intending to get there. It keeps us all on the same page with biblical expectations, knowing where those things lead to maturity in our relationship with Christ. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Lord, it's kind of interesting that you would put this in the Bible for all of us as Christians and not just for leaders. You didn't tuck it away in a pastoral epistle or anything like that. And we thank you for the ability to have something that is true and sure that we can constantly be recalibrating ourselves against not only as a church but our own individual personal life. Thank you so much, Lord, this morning from our individual hearts 
for how you have used these seven things that are listed in Acts chapter 2 to bring us to maturity in our relationship with you. We have experienced wonderful things because of what these things have done in our lives. And we pray, Lord, uh, as any would stand before you, myself included, and this morning was a revelation of uh, one or two or three weak spots in our Christian life for growing in maturity. We thank you that you put your finger on that, and we ask that you help to rectify that and to take care of it so that we continue to grow into the disciple and Christian that you want us to be. Thank you that we don't have to try and figure this all out ourselves, figure out what the church is supposed to be, put all of our heads together and, and then make this as big a mess as the whole world is all around us. We thank you for the pricelessness of the revelation of this passage. And again, we thank you that it's already been tested by our lives, and we thank you for what it is produced within us. We bless you today for it, Father, and we bless you in Jesus' name. Amen.